If you have your Bibles, please turn uh, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 56. Uh, this morning we're going to, Lord willing, look at verses, or chapters 56 and 57, um, but we'll just be reading 56 for now, work through it, then carry on uh, into chapter 57. So Isaiah uh, 56, begin reading at verse 1, read down to the end of the chapter. This is the Word of God. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people, and let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Come, all you beasts of the field, come and devour all you beasts of the forest. Israel's watchmen are blind, they all lack knowledge, they are all mute dogs, they cannot bark. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. They are dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. They are shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn to their own way. They seek their own gain. Come, each one cries. Let me get wine. Let us drink our fill of beer. And tomorrow will be like today, or even far better. Before we uh, consider this passage together, let's pray. Our Father, we would ask uh, this morning that you would, in fact, open up your word to us, Lord, in a very real and powerful way. We pray that you will help us uh, to be attentive uh, intellectually, but also spiritually. Uh, Open up uh, those receptors that we have in our spirits. Make us attuned to you and to your truth. And we pray that you will minister to us uh, in a special way this morning by your Holy Spirit. We pray for those who are uh, away, uh, traveling, or on vacation. We just pray that you will bless them as well. Uh, Even now, uh, draw them close to yourself, wherever they are. Uh, I pray that you will protect them and that you will allow them to enter into uh, a new level of relationship with you. They'll be able to worship you. Lord, we thank you uh, for those who are joining us uh, here this morning, uh, perhaps visiting uh, friends or family. We just pray that you will bless them in a special way as well. And Father, may everything that we do and say be pleasing and honoring to you. 
Lord, we thank you uh, this morning for uh, the life of Jim Reese, uh, for the blessing that he was uh, in, in ministry and personal uh, relationships, in uh, music and in preaching. Uh, Lord, he was a very unique and specially gifted man uh, who had an impact on many, many churches uh, throughout uh, Ontario, certainly, and uh, had a particular impact on this church as well. So we thank you for him. Uh, we thank you that even now uh, he, has, he is lending his voice uh, to that uh, heavenly choir uh, in your presence and praising your name. Uh, keep us strong until that day when we ourselves are called into your presence. Prepare us for it through Jesus, for we ask it in his holy name. Amen. Now, uh, last week... I wasn't here, but the previous week we looked at Isaiah chapter 54 and 55, and if you were here, you of course remember that, and uh, you remember everything there is to remember about those two chapters, and so you will of course remember that Isaiah 54 and 55 are absolutely filled with staggering promises of blessing. Uh, that God is freely giving His people. And all of those blessings in chapters 54 and 55, you will, of course, recall, flow out of the substitutionary work of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 52, 13 through the end of 53, 12. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the things that's, that's very important to realize is that uh, all of the blessings that God gives to His people are mediated through this servant and through His work. And so you, you, you immediately move from what the servant of the Lord does in Isaiah 53 into the blessings and joy of 54 and 55, and that's not accidental. Uh, the blessings are actually contingent. Uh, they hang on what the servant has done. Now, in 56, you're moving out of some of those promises of blessing, and you're being told how you ought to respond. So, you've just been told in 55.12, you will go out in joy, be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, instead of briars the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. And then without any break, you're supposed to just move into, this is what the Lord says, maintain justice and do what is right. In other words... All of the saving blessings of God flow out of the work of the servant of the Lord. And then in response to all the saving blessings of God, we are to be active and get to work, maintain justice, and do what is right. So we don't make ourselves acceptable to God by maintaining justice and doing what is right. We are rendered acceptable to God by the fact that the servant of the Lord has borne all of our iniquity and sin, Isaiah 53. And then God just lavishes blessings upon us freely in His grace, Isaiah 54 and 55. And then in response to that, you get to work maintaining justice and doing what is right in the world. And the reason for that is then immediately getting anchored back into what God is doing for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Since the righteousness of God is the perfect standard, 
then if we are to maintain justice, because the righteousness is soon to be revealed, basically what we're trying to do is we're trying to order things in accord with the righteousness of God. Because God's righteousness is going to be made manifest, Isaiah has made that perfectly clear before now, God's righteousness is going to be made manifest, and so since that is the case, we may as well be trying to bring everything into conformity with God's righteousness now. So do what is right, do what is righteous, maintain justice, because soon we're going to see the perfect manifestation of the righteousness of God revealed. Because of that, blessed is the one, verse 2, who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing evil. Now, this section, uh, Sabbath is going to be referenced uh, several times. And probably the reason that this one command is sort of isolated, the reason that Sabbath is given the emphasis, is that for Israel, uh, Sabbath really did, in many ways, represent the covenant. And so what God is saying here, sort of from, a, from synecdoche, from part to the whole, you know, he's saying, look, if you, if you will obey Sabbath, if you will sort of obey the, the, what represents the covenant, trusting me, resting from your own works, you know, just resting in me, if you will do that, if you will keep your hands from evil, then you will be blessed. So keeping the Sabbath here is probably, again, reference of part for the whole, uh, uh, symbolically standing for everything that God has required of his people. Do this and you will be blessed. And then God wor- or then Isaiah works through different categories. Uh, in Deuteronomy, uh, eunuchs were forbidden from serving in the temple. And there's a lot of, uh, there's probably a lot of rationale behind that, uh, which we won't get into now. Uh, but regardless of the interpretation of precisely why that's the case, uh, eunuchs were not able to serve in the temple. And foreigners uh, were also excluded from temple service. Here, God is saying that he is going to remove those restrictions. In fact, eunuchs are going to be given a memorial in the house of God that is in the temple of God within its walls that is better than sons and daughters. Uh, In the Israelite culture, uh, your legacy was your posterity. And so uh, your name would pass along through your children. Here, what God is saying is that eunuchs, who obviously are not able to have children, they will have, verse 5, a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. And so those people in Israel wanted to pass on their name through their family line. Here, the eunuchs are being told, you'll have a better name than sons and daughters. In fact, God says, I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And the reality is, uh, the vast, 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 vast majority of people in Israel who had sons and daughters back in Isaiah's day are not remembered by anyone at all today. The truth is, as much as uh, you know, some of us would like to think that one day we'll be remembered, it's not going to happen. Uh, Ecclesiastes is very clear uh, and right that generations come and generations go, and no one remembers who came before them. That's just reality. Uh, It's not going to take more than a couple generations of of grandkids, great-grandkids, great-great-grandkids, and you're forgotten. 100, 150 years after you've lived, 
no one on earth will remember, and no one on earth, frankly, will care. Uh, you may end up in some electronic database, and your great-great-great-grandchild will have a school project where they have to figure out their lineage, and then your name will appear in that family tree, and they will take your name into class, and they'll say, my great-great-great-grandfather was so-and-so, and the teacher will say, can you tell me anything about him? And they will say, no, and I don't care. I mean, that's the way that it is. I mean, let's just be honest. No one is going to care about anything that we've done. But God says, you know, apart from children and grandchildren, I'll give you an everlasting name. I'll give you a name that endures forever. But nobody has that, you see. Nobody. Well, how can you have an everlasting name? It's because God will always remember you, because you will eternally live in His presence, because you belong to Him. Your, your name never fades away because you never fade away, because He is the God not of the dead but of the living. And so, as He blesses you with all these covenant salvation blessings, He keeps you to Himself forever and ever and ever. I'll give you an everlasting name that will endure forever. Foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and be His servants, all will keep the Sabbath, are desecrating and hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. So here is now God is responding. God's saying, I'm going to gather these people in. I will bring them to myself and I will give them joy. They'll be brought into my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices on my altar. But they weren't allowed to come in to offer the sacrifices and now they are. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. You will call Jesus quotes that when he clears the temple. So then the Sovereign Lord says, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. So what God is saying is, look, I'm going to bless you. There's salvation, so maintain justice. Do what's right. Keep my covenant. And it doesn't matter what your background is. It it doesn't matter what, what your disabilities are. Nothing matters except if you love me and are faithful to my covenant, I will bless you eternally. I will give you an everlasting name. I will gather you to myself. I will bring you to my holy mountain. I will accept all of your sacrifices. I will accept all of your worship, all of your praise. I will accept you and give you joy in my house of prayer. That's what I'm going to do for you. So because of that, maintain justice, do what's right, keep in covenant relationship with me. Now, those are staggering blessings of grace as well. But there's a problem. There's a problem with the leadership, and there's a problem with the people. And you get this in verses 9 through 12. Here, God calls for the beasts of the field to come, because they're going to have an easy feast in his flock. Come, all you beasts of the field, come and devour all you beasts of the forest. Why? Israel's watchmen are blind. They all lack knowledge. They are all mute dogs. They cannot bark. Now, this is tough. This is, this is, this is, I, I, have, I have never hired a watchman, right? Uh, but you think one of the things you want your watchman to be able to do is to be able to see. A blind watchman is not shockingly helpful you know, in terms of guarding, uh, guarding your city or guarding your flock. Or it also doesn't help if they're mute. 
they're mute dogs, they cannot bark. So you, you have a, a sheep dog, and it's supposed to, supposed to alert you if there's a problem, and it can't bark, that's a real problem. Uh, so what you want is you want people who can see and people who can make noise. And, and, and of course, you know, in our sort of Western history, you know, watchmen used to sort of walk around and, and they'd call out things nice and loud like, it's one o'clock and all is well, you know, and, and you want to trust them. In fact, uh, they were the watch. This is why, of course, you know, uh, I'm not wearing one today. That's why the timepiece that you wear on your wrist is called a watch. Indeed, uh, it is, uh, because you know, it used to be the watchmen uh, who would watch, and they would also call out the time, they'd call off the, the hours of the night, and so that became, it was the watch. And so when we had to figure out, well, what do you call in English, you know, that timepiece around your wrist, you could just call it the timepiece around your wrist, or you could call it a watch. That's how you used to know what the time was, the watchman would yell it out. Now, if the watchmen are blind, they don't know anything, and they can't make a sound, then they're going to be absolutely useless when it comes to alerting you to danger. But not only that, they lie around and dream. They love to sleep. So they're lazy as well. Uh, Instead of being awake, even if they're awake, they can't see. If they're awake, they can't yell anything. They can't alert you, but they're not even awake. They just love to lie around and sleep. But not only that, they themselves are dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. They are shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn to their own way. They seek their own gain. Now, it is true that every once in a while, uh, dogs will actually start uh, developing a taste for the sheep that they're supposed to be protecting. Uh, and, and when this happens, everyone knows that the sheepdog needs to be put down or at least removed far away uh, from the flock. So here, these people who are supposed to be watching the sheep are now the ones who are devouring them. They have mighty appetites. They never have enough. They're only interested for their own gain. They don't care a bit about anyone else. So not only are they sort of unable to do the job, they're actually doing the opposite. They are themselves the predators. Let's just get drunk, they say. Let's drink our fill of beer. Let's get some wine. And tomorrow will be like today, you know, selfish pleasure, or even far better. Now, the hope that tomorrow will be better is not a hope that's going to be realized because of God. The watchmen are missing something very important, and that's what you find in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 57. The watchmen are missing that the righteous are perishing and no one takes it to heart. That is, no one thinks about it. The devout are taken away, and no one understands. But the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. So the watchmen are too blind and too drunk to actually see what's going on. What's going on is something very very challenging. God is actually gathering the righteous to Himself to spare them from seeing evil. And so, God is gathering some young, godly people into His presence through death to spare them 
from experiencing all the evil and suffering and pain that there is in the world because of people like these watchmen, because of the general brokenness of, of the world because of sin. Now, this, is, this is not necessarily the verse that is to be used every single time someone dies. But it does give a perspective. It does provide a lens, particularly if a young person dies. Sometimes. Sometimes in mercy, what God is doing is He is gathering a righteous, sensitive person to Himself to spare them from the experience of evil that we all experience at some level, to some degree, in this world. The righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. And so, for some, the world is just such a grievous place that even if they're not suffering overly much themselves, the world is just so heartbreaking to them as they see all the evil that there is that sometimes, sometimes, God in mercy will allow them to rest. And where will they find rest in this world? Well, sometimes you can't find rest in this world. Yes, sometimes supernaturally God gives people peace in this world. Sometimes God gives people peace by removing them from this world. That's what the text says. Now, why does God bring some to Himself and leave others to, to suffer for, for decades and decades and decades in this world? Uh, why does God remove some uh, to be spared from evil? Why does God bring some to Himself at a young age to, to be spared from the evil and suffering and pain of this world? Why does He let some enter into the peace of death and to rest uh, while others have to endure unimaginable suffering and sorrow? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know why God runs the world that He does. Um, the, the older I get, it's a relative thing, but the older I get, and the more aware I become of things around the world and things in our own backyards, uh, I don't know. I don't know a lot about what God is doing and why He does allow the things that He allows, why He permits what He permits, why He decrees what He decrees. And so I will never say in one particular circumstance, well, this is why God has done this with this person, and this is why God has done this with this person. I, I am not the judge of that. I don't have that type of knowledge. But sometimes God does gather people to Himself to spare them from evil. And sometimes God does allow people to experience a long lifetime of evil and suffering before bringing them to Himself. And I don't know why He makes those different decisions, but He does. The glory of it, though, is that those who walk uprightly, whether it's for a short time or a long time, they do eventually enter into peace. They do find rest as they lie in death. And we know that the reason for that, of course, is that as Jim Reese is experiencing, 
those who lie in death, if they are in Christ, have never been more alive. And so they find rest from evil in death because they live. You, 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 you don't get to this text without, without remembering even the eunuchs who serve God get an everlasting name, a name that endures eternally. They finally enter into peace. Sometimes that peace, you slip into it. Sometimes that peace is hard won. A lot of sleepless nights before it. But everyone who walks uprightly finally has peace as they lie in death. But not for everyone. But you. Come here, you children of a sorceress, you offspring of adulterers and prostitutes. Who are you mocking? At whom do you sneer and stick out your tongue? Are you not a brood of rebels, the offspring of liars? You burn with lust among the oaks and under every spreading tree. You sacrifice your children in the ravines and under the overhanging crags. The idols among the smooth stones of the ravines are your portion. Indeed, they are your lot. Yes, to them you have poured out drink offerings and offered grain offerings. In view of all this, should I relent? You have made your bed on a high and lofty hill. There you went up to offer your sacrifices. Behind the doors and your doorposts you have put your pagan symbols. Forsaking me, you uncovered your bed. You climbed into it and opened it wide. You made a pact with those whose beds you loved, and you looked with lust on their naked bodies. You went to Moloch with olive oil and increased your perfumes. You sent your ambassadors far away. You descended to the very realm of the dead. You wearied yourself by such going about, but you would not say it is hopeless. You found renewal of your strength, and so you did not faint. Whom have you so dreaded in fear that you have not been true to me and have neither remembered me nor taken this to heart? Is it because I have long been silent that you do not fear me? I will expose your righteousness and your works, and they will not benefit you. When you cry out for help, let your collection of idols save you. The wind will carry all of them off. A mere breath will blow them away. But whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. So in contrast to the righteous, it's the wicked, those who, who offer uh, sacrifices and engage in, in their lust and pagan rituals in sort of the sacred groves that they've established for that purpose is going to their false gods with offerings. For these people, God says, look, there's someone that you fear more than me. There are gods that you prefer to me. Then let them save you. And this is, this is a frightening thing. At the end of the day, God says this, Look, let the one you fear be your rescuer. If it's me, I will come and rescue you. If it's your gods, let them come and rescue you. If you you fear someone more than me, let them be your deliverer. You, 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 you put your trust in, you know, in, in education and health care and money, then let education and health care and money come and rescue you. 
You, know, you put your trust in liberal democracy, although at this point in the experiment of liberal democracy, one would be hard-pressed to think that's a good idea. But you put your ultimate trust in liberal democracy. Let the, let the government of liberal democracy be your rescuer when you're in trouble. What do you fear more than me? That's what you will turn to, and what you turn to in the end, that will deliver you if it can. You worship gods of stone, they'll do nothing for you. You worship anything less than God Himself, and you'll find that your trust has been misplaced. Whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. You trust in God, and God will give you everything. You trust in anything besides God, and you'll have nothing at all. However, in contrast to the wicked, this is what God will do for the righteous, verse 14. And it will be said, because you've just been told you'll receive the land and, the, and his God's holy mountain, it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. So the first thing that you're being told here is that God, in order to bless you, is going to remove every obstacle. This is sort of like, you remember Isaiah 40, when the wilderness road is being prepared, you know, every valley is raised up, every mountain brought low so that everything is like a smooth plain to walk on, you know, no, no contours, no, no climbing the mountain peaks or descending into the valleys. God raises the valleys and lowers the mountains, so it's just one smooth plain to walk across. He's removing every obstacle. Remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. Why? For this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. That's how, why you can have, a, have an everlasting name, because God lives forever. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place. This is the accent is on the transcendence of God. Do not forget, my name is holy. Do not forget, Isaiah 6, that the seraphim, the burning ones, the shining ones, live to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Never forget that. Uh, that's central to the identity of God in this book, the Holy One of Israel. I am the high and exalted one. I live forever. My very name, my essence is holy. And I live in a high and holy place. That is, the, the, the heavens bear my character. They are, they are a fitting abode for me. I am the high and holy one, and so the place where I live is high and holy as well. So don't, don't forget how transcendent I am. Because if you don't understand how transcendent He is, if you don't understand that He is the Holy One of Israel, then the next part of the verse won't, won't be wonderful as it ought to be. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the One who is contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. In other words, God is saying, and He's reminding you, this is how great and exalted I am. And if you, and if you understand the way that, that sin runs together with the concept of the holiness of God, then you will be broken and contrite. You will be lowly. You will be humbled. And for some, as God gathers the righteous to Himself, 
to give them peace. Others are left in the world suffering, experiencing heartache and pain, seeing the evil that there is, the effects of the curse, death. It's one thing to be gathered to God through death. It's another thing to be left to be the one left behind, missing those who have been taken. And so, for a lot of people, looking at the world, if you do sensitively, it is it is crushing. And God says, "Oh, don't worry. You're, you feel crushed." under the weight of the sorrow and sin of this world. You're, you're shattered or broken underneath the weight of the evil in this world. Oh, if that's the case, the one thing that you are not is alone. The one thing that you are not is by yourself. Even if part of the pain is that everyone else has forsaken you. Because I am not just a God above. I'm a God who is imminent. I'm a God who lives with you. I'm a God, we find out, with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, I'm a God who lives in you, in your heart. And so you'll never be alone, because I am not just above you, I am with you, always, even to the very end of the age. And so I live not only in heaven, but I also live with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive their spirit, to revive their heart, to give them new life and strength. And that really is fairly remarkable. There just isn't. There just isn't ego in God. Not just not just. Too good for us. Although he is. But he chooses to live with us. Us, like like think about. Think about where you live. Your, your home. God lives in that place. And when you're, when you're in your car, when you're on your bike, when you're out for a walk, in Him we live and move and have our being. That, that's objectively true because He's everywhere. But in a special way, he, he lives with you. He goes where you go. He lives with people like us. And... and the error that is to just keep thinking that he's like our buddy and forget that he's holy, holy, holy who lives in heaven. Both are true. Always transcendent. Always. Always imminent. Always. Really, really quite the God. I will not accuse them forever, nor will I always be angry. For then they would faint away because of me, the very people I have created. And this is, this is great, because it's God saying, you know, 
these poor guys, you know, these, these creatures of dust, they can't handle my wrath. So I'm going to give them a break. I'm going to have mercy on them so they're not totally destroyed. I was enraged by their sinful greed. I mean, God himself will live with the lowly. Who are we to be greedy? I punished them and hid my face in anger, yet they kept on their willful ways. I have seen their ways, but I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort to Israel's mourners, creating praise on their lips. In other words, God lives with us, not because he doesn't know who we are, but precisely because he does know who we are. I have seen their ways, but I will heal them. In other words, I've seen their ways. They deserve punishment, but in mercy and grace, I will heal them instead. I'll guide them. I'll restore them. I'll create praise in them. I will say, peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God. For the wicked. The contrast is obviously with verse 19, but it's also back to verses 1 and 2 of 57. Even in death, the righteous have peace, but there's no peace for the wicked. Now, this does not mean the wicked never have peace of mind. This isn't necessarily psychological. This is peace in terms of shalom. This is peace in terms of God's covenant rightness. This is peace in terms of things being as they ought to be. And so there is no peace possible for the wicked. For those who persist in rebellion, for those who will not be in covenant relationship with God, there can't possibly be shalom. There can't possibly be peace. There can't possibly be harmony or wellness in a holistic sense because things are fundamentally not right and well except for those who are in right relationship with God. And so there is no peace for the wicked. There can't be peace for the wicked. It's not about peace of mind. Some people who are, who are desperately wicked sleep just fine at night. This isn't about psychological peace, peace of mind. This is about peace with God. This is about things being actually the way that they ought to be, and there isn't any of that for the wicked. But for the righteous, even in death, there is. And again, very transparently, then, Isaiah just puts this out. These are your options. Do you want to walk with God who is high and holy and also dwells with those who are lowly and contrite? Or do you want to persist in rebellion and have your, your gods of stone answer you and help you and deliver you? That, those are your choices. And we today, of course, this side of the life of Jesus... Know that all of these blessings and all this life is ours because it's mediated only through Him. Now, in Isaiah, you know it's mediated through the servant of the Lord, Isaiah 53. We know that that's all fulfilled with Jesus. And we know that Isaiah 53, that substitutionary death, is fulfilled through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, bearing the sins of the people of God, dying in their place so they could have peace and salvation and forgiveness and grace, redeemed. The Lord's Supper, communion, uh, symbolizes that death of Christ. The, the bread you know, represents the body of Christ. Uh, the juice represents the blood of Christ. You know, his, his, his total life, His physical life given, given for us. And of course, that physical death was part of the atonement that Christ provides 
when He pays the spiritual penalty for our sins, bearing the wrath of God. And so, if you would have peace with God, it comes by only one way, and that's through Jesus. All the blessings of God come only through Him and through what He did for us on the cross. And so, the Lord Jesus Christ told us to do these things, to, to, to celebrate this as a memorial to, in remembrance of Him, to bring to mind who He is and what He has done. And so, this morning, that's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to celebrate communion together. We're going to think about all of the blessings of God, the peace that He has created for us through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord on the cross. So, I'm going to ask those who are going to help to distribute these things uh, this morning to come forward this time. Everyone. And so, Father, we pray that you will help us to uh, enter into that deep, deep love, uh, knowing that we can only love you because you have first loved us, that you give us spiritual life and, and regenerate our hearts so that we can know you and love you. Help us to do so truly and purely. Help us to know you better. Help us to love you more. And help us to always be aware that you love us uh, infinitely more than we can ever love you certainly more than we deserve, uh, but you are a great and high and holy God who also makes his home with people like us. Thank you for that, for that gift of condescending grace. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in grace and peace.